from the Canoe West Media Studio on the shores of beautiful Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada. This is Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Well, today is February 9th, 2016, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and, well, anything else that crosses our minds. Completely unscripted, raw, and personal. Today at the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, we have six of us again today. Sam Manicom. Sam, where are you? Hello. Hey, I'm very good, thank you. And where are you? I'm in the UK at the moment. Very good. And we have Graham Field. Hi, Jim. And you're at your mom's house? <laughs> yeah, I rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I just flew back from uh, from uh, Bulgaria today, so uh, yeah, I got just got back from the UK this afternoon. So yeah, we have Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks from way over in Australia. Good morning. Where it's already January ten. <laughs> yeah, January ten, and it's beautiful riding uh, around here at the moment. You're you're spoiling that for us. We don't have the tenth yet, so don't spoil it. I I, I hate those spoilers. So at least we know it's going to be beautiful tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. And of course, we have Grant Johnson from British Columbia, Canada. Yep, I'm here too. And the weather out there is absolutely spectacular. It's gorgeous. It really is. Definitely. We've had two days of amazing weather here and on the coast. It's, it's incredible. It feels like summer, spring. Yep, absolutely. So today, our first topic that we're dealing with is bribes to pay or not to pay. And you know what? I'm sort of curious if we could start off with, does anyone have an anecdotal story about paying bribes or dealing with them? Yeah, I've got one. <laughs> Graham, go for it. Okay. Um, and, and, and the actual question, the full question was, do we pay? Do we not pay? How do we deal with, with bribes? And my own personal stance is I, I do because it's, it's so much easier to pay than it is to stand your ground and have papers taken off for you, have bikes impounded, having to wait another day before the before you can go and get your bike from the relative police station or whatever. So I always carry a fake wallet. And in that fake wallet are expired credit cards, a duplicate driver's license, US dollars and local currency, receipts from ATMs. And it looks like a real wallet. In fact, I use it like a real wallet, but I only keep a minimal amount of money in there. So when I am taken by, uh, pulled over by corrupt police, I show them what I've got and it, it will ruin my day. Maybe it's going to cost me 50 US dollars in total to, if I have to give up that wallet. It's not just a corruption wallet, it's a it's a, a mugging wallet as well. So if somebody takes it in a hurry, it looks like a good steal full of credit cards and, and what have you, but everything's expired, everything's duplicated, only the money is real, but it, it's a minimal amount. So, um, that is the way I, I deal with the, uh, the sort of the potential bribe situation by not having an awful lot on me. And, you know, that's all I've got. That's all I've got. Showing, show them credit cards. They're not going to look so close if they see that the date's wrong and sort of say, well, we can take my credit card to the ATM. But of course, they don't want that. They want quick, easy money. However, I was leaving Mexico. It was the home straight. I'd been in Mexico for a couple of months. And I'd gone to what I now know is a notorious place for corrupt police. And because it was home straight, I'd got uh, quite a lot of money. I think it was about the equivalent of about 300 US out of the ATM to see me on my last three days out of Mexico. Enough for gas, enough for hotels, enough for food. And that was it. And I'd got lazy. I hadn't bothered 
taking the money and distributing it. It was all in my fake wallet. And it was daylight robbery. Police had got me. It was so well rehearsed. They blew their whistle. They pulled me over. They were all around me. They asked for the documents. Then they took the documents. And I was so vulnerable. I, I didn't have the documents anymore. And they, I showed them my fake wallet, which had all the money in that I just got out of the ATM. And the bastards took the lot. There was nothing I could do. The, the alternative was, well, we will impound your bike. You'll have to stay here tonight. Tomorrow you can go and see the senior commissioner. You can explain your case to him. And, and the thing was, the thing why they had pulled me over was because apparently I'd gone through a red light which was utter bollocks because the electric was out in the town. There was no lights anywhere. <laughs> so it was a completely fabricated story on their part. So I was I was as much pissed off as myself as I was with them because I I got lazy. It was my own fault that I had that much money there. And also I was going to treat myself to a pair of real kick-ass cowboy boots when I got to the border. And so I didn't get to have my cowboy boots after they'd done their business and after they'd taken my money. I went to, a, to an ATM with my proper credit card, got some money out, and uh, a Mexican guy said to speak a little English, hi, how are you doing? I said, oh, just been, just been ripped off by the police. And he said, yeah, it happens. And I thought, yeah, it does. You know, it, it, it's not just me. I wasn't the victim. That Everybody's a victim of it. And that was just for police. My immediate reaction was hate Mexico, hate Mexicans, hate everything. But it was just you got to direct your hate in the right place. Everybody else was fine. And when you get it into perspective, yeah, I didn't get to get me cowboy boots and they ripped me off. But it's the lesson learned. So, yeah, that's my little anecdote about bribes. Did they tell you that you had to pay that full 300 US or you couldn't leave? Was that the amount they, they said after they looked at your wallet? Well, give them all that now, because how it's the times when I have had bribes and corrupt police. First of all, there's a disproportionate amount of money that has to be paid. Documents will be impounded. Bikes will be impounded until that's paid. It will take a long time overnight, next day and what have you. And then all of a sudden it occurs to them in a little flash of genius that perhaps if you were to give them a little gift now, they could overlook the whole thing. And it's, it's, you see it played out again and again. So they were my options. Give them all the contents of my wallet or, I, 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 you know, you're so vulnerable once someone else is holding your passport, especially when it's a corrupt cop. Basically, for me, it's pay the money, get my documents back and get out of there. Yeah, I always have a different uh, reaction to that. I don't like uh, supporting corruption, as it were. So I will always say, fine, we'll see you in court tomorrow or at the police station. And that tends to stop them because that's not what they want. Number one right. thing they want is the money and they want you to be afraid and not want to go through all the paperwork and all the courts and all the rest of it. They want you to do exactly what you do, which is pay. And I think as soon as you say, fine, I'll see you there tomorrow and let them have your fake driver's license and fake papers and all the rest of it, they will start dickering to get a, uh, something out of you rather than nothing. So the price can go from a very high number to a very low number very quickly. Does it ever go the other way, though? Do you ever find that you do something like that and, and find yourself in worse hot water? No, not on the street. What can, what can happen <clears throat> is that you say, okay, I'm only, I've only got $100 or $50 or whatever. You, you try and give them a very small number and try not to show them your wallet. I don't show them my wallet ever unless I absolutely have to. Um, but you, you negotiate first. That's the important thing. As soon as they say, we want some money, they'll always give you a number. 
you know, we want $300 or some ridiculous number for some imagined um, illegal thing like driving through a red light that doesn't exist. And I've had the same thing, exactly. And you just say, no, and yes, I will see you in court tomorrow. And their tune immediately changes. Okay, it's very important to do that and to realize that they want the money now quickly. And they also want to get on to the next person coming along. The longer you spend talking to them, the more time they're wasting not making money from somebody else. Peter Forwood tells me that um, he never pays a bribe. And Peter is the kind of guy that can talk for a long time if he wants to. He will literally talk to the police in English, whether they speak English or not, he doesn't care. And he will rant for an hour if necessary. And he will walk around them. If you can imagine Peter at the side of the road walking around the the police ranting and screaming and yelling and getting very upset and saying this is not the right thing. He doesn't use bad language. He doesn't get himself in trouble. But he says this is not right and I didn't do it. And he will go on and on and on and on. Meanwhile, the cop is watching all kinds of vehicles going by that he could be stopping. He's completely wasting his time. So eventually he just says, go, get out of here, go away. That's what we do too, Grant. I always yep. do the only we're from Australia, we only speak English. And I just keep saying that. Ryan just keeps nodding as if to say the woman knows what she's talking about. And in the <laughs> end, they go away because they are watching the other vehicles go past that they can shake down easier. We've if had, they speak yep. English, it's a problem. We've, we've, had a, we've had three or four instances like that and uh, a couple in the Slavic countries um, where a guy accused us of speeding when we were travelling behind a truck, pulled us out of a line. And I just refused. Dead no, no, not paying anything. And another one was uh, a guy pulled up a a fellow in a BMW car in front of us and I watched him as we were a little bit higher. He was putting money into a cigarette packet and handed it to this uh, low life and Mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to get off the bike and and choke the living shit out of him. (laughs) You know, it's just not right. And I refused to give anything. Shirley held me back. But um, then uh, we got pulled up in uh, oh, in the middle of some little country lane. There was a bit of barbed wire strung across the road. And the guy, there's no other cars around. The guy said, you cross double lines. And we did the we, we don't speak your language instance and sat there, argued with him. It must be an Australian thing because I walk around a bit too. And um, <laughs> then, uh, eventually he got sick and tired of watching others go past that he could have easily shaken down and let us go. Pull his piece yep. of barbed wire and let us go. It takes patience, and but eventually you'll win because it's just not worth their while. Whereas I could tell you about um, two people from a country I won't mention who were somewhere in the middle of Africa. I think they're going into Chad, and the police said there will be a $50 fee each to enter, and these guys said, nope, in our country, the embassy said there is no fee to cross this border. We're not paying, and they didn't. For, but it took them three days before they finally got through. But they were not going to pay. And I think the important thing when you do that is that it makes people, the police, the bad, the corrupt people realize that not everybody's going to pay and they're not going to get it out of you. And it's just not worth their while. Eventually they'll give up. Yeah, it does make you wonder, though, if, if just a, a few people going through and refusing to pay is enough to change the way they're going to operate or whether this is so ingrained. And it's not just motorcyclists they're stopping. I mean, they've got to be stopping everybody. Sure they are. But the more people don't pay, the more they get used to, there will be some who will pay and there yeah. will be some who will won't. And those who won't 
give up on them easier and quicker and let them through. And it also lowers the amount of money that they can get out of everybody. If everybody just pays the first number, remember that in a lot of these countries, bargaining is a way of life. They will throw out $100 and, and if you give them $100, they're absolutely ecstatic. They say, wow, look at this. I got $100 out of this schmuck. Just start bargaining. Say, well, I don't know, $100. I can't really afford that. How about 10 And you'll end up somewhere in the middle. And that's fine. But don't just give it to them. Never just give it to them. Sam, we haven't heard from you yet. <laughs> I'm enthralled. Um, I, I, I've been traveling on and off since I was 16 years old, and I've never paid a bribe. Um, that's not to say I wouldn't if I felt I really had to. A um, couple of examples of not paying a bribe. Um, one was at an African border crossing, and I made it um, exiting the country that I was in, no problem, into the other next country. And I followed my usual routine, which nearly always works. And I got to the customs officer, and he wouldn't stamp my carnet unless um, I gave him $50. Well, um, in my usual style, I refused, and he dug his heels in, and so I said to him, right, okay, well, look, no man's land is about um, 500 metres long, almost a kilometre. Um, I'm going to go and put my tent up there, because if you won't let me into, my, into the country without signing my carnet, um, stamping my carnet, then I can't come and ride in your country, and I want to. And what I'm going to do is there's lots of BMWs and Mercedes that are going through um, and they look as if they belong to really important people. So I'm going to put my tent up there and every time a BMW or a Mercedes goes past, I'm going to stop it and explain that, the, that they need to be very careful because the next border crossing is corrupt. And this guy said to me, OK, you do it. So I did. <laughs> And I put my tent up, and um, every time a car like that went past, I stopped it, and I was so stupid. I should never have done this. I was in no man's land. They could have shot me any time they wanted to, but I, they were so gobsmacked that I'd done it that um, they started to get a bit worried in the end, and after a while, one of the border guards came running out into, the, um, into no man's land and said, my boss, he says, you go. So I went to the border crossing and um, the guy still wouldn't stamp my carnet. So I said, well, it's okay. I'll go back. I have plenty of food and water. It's not a problem. Ah, all right. Bang, bang, bang with the carnet stamp and um, off I went. But I mean, there was another time in um, crossing from Chile into Peru. Um, Birgit and I had made it across in reasonable time, so by lunchtime, and we decided that we would ride to the next town. And uh, we cruised along, um, paying full attention to the speed limit because we told that Peru has a lot of corrupt police. Uh, we'd heard all of the scare stories, so it put us on edge. Anyway, we made it to the first town, had a, um, found ourselves a really nice hotel, settled in, um, had a good night's kip, and the next morning we were up early and um, on our way. And um, I suppose about an hour down the road, there were two cops, flagged us down, pulled us to the side and accused us of speeding. They thought we had ridden all the way from the border to where they were that morning. My God, we'd have been speeding if that was the truth. Um, but fortunately, we still had the receipt from the hotel. So after lots of um, gentle but firm discussing and lots of talking um, and pulling this receipt out, eventually they um, let us on their way. I mean, I, th I think... Um, a lot of people pay bribes because of certain things. First one is fear. You know, you hear the traveller's tales. Um, and also, I think you have concern about your own ability with how to deal with um, a bribery situation. And, and that fear puts you on edge and puts you at a disadvantage. 
I think you can also be at risk of, of paying um, a bribe because you are in um, under pressure from a threatening person. And if you um, have um, underlying issues, then that does make you vulnerable. And what I mean by underlying issues is if you're under time pressure, for example, and border crossings are a classic example, people who arrive at border crossings late in the day open themselves up to um, demands for bribery because the border officials know that you've only got a limited amount of time left to get through the border. Um, I think some people are vulnerable to bribery because they want to get something done fast. And that just means, right, okay, I'll pay it. Um, some people that I've talked to, um, they pay bribes wherever they go because their attitude is, well, it's culture. That's how it's done here. So if that's how it's done, then I just fit in with the culture. And I, I agree with um, Grant and um, Brian and Shirley and that um, that's not a good thing to do. I, I really try. I think it's um, – I don't want to encourage it. Um, I think lack of patience can sometimes um, – play into things um, and I think also you can open yourself up to um, aggressive demands for bribery by your own attitude as in if you're snotty with the official that's standing in front of you with their hand out um, then you're just going to make them dig their heels in even more and I think it was Grant that mentioned just now about not knowing the facts. So as in when you approach a broader, um, do you know what paperwork you really need to have to be able to go across that border? Um, if you do, then you have got the chance of um, arguing the toss. Graham, I, I have to give you credit for being the first one to stand up and, and say that because I know that you knew you were going to get a bunch of ridicule about that. But if, if I can just sort of inquire as to that instant, um, was it a time thing as well, that, or was it just that you completely screwed up? Um, I screwed up, definitely. It, the, the, the time wouldn't have mattered that much. I guess in my head the trip was over. I was doing the trip back to Colorado, which was the, the end of the trip for me, uh, which is why I was sort of getting lazy. The time wasn't the big thing. And also I think a lot of the examples, not all, but a lot of the examples we've just heard have been when there's been more than one person, and that changes everything. The few times when I have been with another person, when I've uh, been in a bribe situation, it's been so much easier and you can haggle and you can stand your ground. But when you're on your own, when somebody's got your passport, when a second person's got your vehicle documents, when there's two other people standing around you, it's very well in theory to say, you know, don't encourage the corruption, stand your ground, haggle, whatever. But in the cold light of day, when you've got four people standing around your vehicle and holding various important documents and demanding money, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not so easy to put that theory into practice, I don't think. No, I agree My, with you. It, it yeah. can be very difficult. Um, when you've got four cops and you're all alone, that's very difficult. And But that's where I come back to. Well, I can't afford that much. How about if I pay you a $10 fine? You, know, you start and, doing and some this is, And this is what I would usually do with the fake wallet, but because I'd been yep. an idiot, because it was all in the wallet, <laughs> because I'd opened the wallet to give my fake license and they saw it all there and they weren't going to let me go until they took every last peso. And, yeah. Well, I say that in my in the way I viewed the situation and I, I didn't string it out for that long. Um, 
but that the light was going and uh, and as i say there was no light in the town because there was electricity cut anyway and in that situation and like i say it was my own stupidity i'll put my hands up to that but that particular situation i didn't really see any other way out of it however i do like your theory about saying okay then let's take it to the to the commission let's take the main police and in a different situation a different time of day uh Maybe I would have done that, but that particular one, no, nah, I just paid. Graham, yeah. I, I can see you doing that. You you can talk <laughs> the hind leg off of a donkey if you really want to. And I think <laughs> once you got into the swing of doing that, you'd actually get a real buzz out of it. And that's part of, of defeating um, the demands for bribery. It's actually starting to enjoy the situation that you're in because you've got a plan and following it in a calm, friendly, enthusiastic. I mean, I've got myself out of bribery situations with a packet of biscuits or a bag of boiled sweets. And when I get stopped, the first thing I do is to, I get off my bike and I, put, I take off a glove and I reach out my hands and I, hand, I shake the, the, the nearest official's hands that I can find and I smile and say hello. Um, and as soon as you start doing that, you become a person rather than a another potential victim. Um, and yeah, boiled sweets, they work nicely. So do biscuits. Used to be cigarettes in the old days, but that's, um, yeah, I don't agree with that. The question that I would put out there is, does the person uh, that is demanding this bribe of you change the scene? In other words, Graham's on his own there. And, and if it's a, a, you know, let's just talk size even, just a little person that's sort of quiet, uh, maybe somewhat persistent, that's a certain scene. But if it's a, if it's a big person, um, if there's some sort of, you know, menacing overtones, like for instance, no hydro, you know, the, the, the town is out of hydro. I mean, you know, for me, and not being an experienced traveler, I would start to worry about safety. You know, is, is what's going to happen when the sun goes down? That sort of thing. Do, are there times like that when you would get into a situation where you say you know it doesn't feel right or it's not safe i'm better off just to pay and flee that's why i said when i began talking um that although i've never paid a bribe that's not to say that i wouldn't if i felt i really had to because in the end you know what's money life is far more important than losing um a couple of hundred dollars and i think that as you're in the situation then that's the judgment that you've got to make is right, you know. If you if you come out with the open, ours is always an open-handed policy. Shake the nearest hand, smile, be friendly. We've used uh, lollies and sweets before, and uh, it's it's attitude. And if you have that attitude right from the word go, nine times out of ten you can get away with it. And you know sometimes you do get uh, you know a little bit complacent, um, like Graham, and we've done that too. We've we've had a shakedown and taken down over insurance. Uh, we thought we were buying insurance. Um, uh, well, we were looking for it when we were crossing the border from into Peru again, and um, the official, um, the police officer said, "Oh, you, uh, the insurance office is not here, but we can fix that for you." And gave us an official-looking document which purported to be insurance, and we paid a little. We knew what the insurance was going to cost, and we paid a little over the odds. But 30 kilometres down the road, there was a roadblock with other police wanting to see our insurance, and of course, it wasn't insurance, was it? And uh, it was a whole scam. And we got pulled up twice in that section of road before we got to the nearest town by police officers wanting to shake us down. And my attitude was, no, we bought this from uh, the police officer at the border and he told us it was insurance. And they say, it's not insurance. I say, well, I want to go and see your, your boss, your commissioner. And I'm going to that town. I'm going to see him. And as soon as we said that, you go, you go. And uh, when we got to that town, we bought proper insurance policies. But, you know, sometimes your guard goes down a little. And um, that, on that particular day, Shirley was sick. 
Uh, and even though we were travelling as a, as a couple, as Graham said, sometimes it's a little easier, um, we did get taken down. So uh, nobody's perfect, and I think you just have to judge those circumstances as you see them, but the attitude is the big thing. You have the right attitude, you get away with most things. Yeah, I want to add a comment on the attitude. I think you're 100% right, and both Sam and Brian have mentioned, you know, shake your hand and stuff like that. I talk a lot about that for border crossings, and your attitude when you're approaching a border is the same as your attitude when you get stopped. You have two choices. One is, oh, this is going to be bad. This is going to be frustrating. This is going to be expensive. This is going to be a really bad day. It's going to ruin my day. It's going to be horrible. Or this is going to be interesting. And I think Sam mentioned this. If we make it fun, adventurous, friendly, you reach out and you shake your hand and you smile and how's you doing? It's a beautiful day and make it something fun and interesting for yourself. Oh, this is going to be an interesting experience and I'm going to have some great stories to tell. Or if you're in, at a border crossing, wow, I'm going to see some really interesting processes and procedures and how things are done here. And it's going to be very interesting and I'm going to have fun or it's going to be a shit day. Take your pick. And if you keep that in mind, you've got two choices here. How, what kind of a day are you going to have? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point because that comes through in everything. Geez, you can go to the, the supermarket and, and do, have the same effect, exactly the same effect, just by your attitude when you walk in. If we're As, to, go ahead. Can, can I just give one other tip? Um, uh, at some um, situations where I've come across um, armed police or soldiers and you know, you just, as you ride towards them, you know what's about to start. Um, the first thing I've done is I've taken my glove off, I've gone straight over, I've shaken them by the hand, and if I can speak anything of the language that they speak, the first thing I've done is I've asked for their help. Ah, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Listen, I think I'm a little bit lost. I'm trying to get to such and such a town. Could you give me some directions, please? And it's amazing how that works. Mm. Yep. Don't do that in the, in the U.S. or in Canada. <laughs> Why? That's true. <laughs> if you get off your bike, oh, they get out. very stroppy. Oh, yeah. If you yeah, open you your door, your bike. if they pull you over and you open your door of your vehicle, the first thing to do in Canada, they'll tell you to get back in. I imagine in the States, they're probably going to use a gun to tell you to get back yes, in. Yes, they will. But, but, yeah, they do not want you getting off your bike or out of your vehicle. Yeah, I did get stopped important. in the States, um, and it was like um, being in a Starsky and Hutch movie. Um, <laughs> you know, sort of doors flung open and um, officers pointing guns over the tops of the doors at me and all of this sort of business. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, I'm a roughy, tufty, dirty, dust-covered overlander here, not a villain. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe there's some similarities there, Sam. <laughs> mm, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, we've, uh, I think we've covered that one pretty well. Um, anyone else feel like they wanted to add something before we go on? I just, I, I just want to say something to Graham. Um, Graham, the, the more bomber pilots in the Second World War got got killed on that last minute of the last few hours of the home run than they did um, heading into battle. Oh, right. <laughs> I had to work to get that connection, but I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say as well, my initial anecdote, that was the biggest by a long way that I've ever paid. If I've got a little bribe or a, a seem, maybe a day's budget is $20 when you get out into cheaper countries and it's something like that, the way I see it is that I can get through that border in half an hour if I pay that $20. And if I don't, if I stand my ground, it could take significantly longer. And tomorrow, 
or within an hour, I'm going to be riding beautiful, twisty, windy roads. I'm going to be seeing a new country. I'm going to be doing the things that I'm out here to do. And that guy is still going to be a twisted, corrupt cop. And that $20 is is nothing in the great scheme of things. For me, it's just for me a, a rite of passage to get on and enjoy my day. And it's not going to do him any good. It's maybe what he wants, but it's not what he needs. And uh, that's kind of how I justify the smaller fines to myself. I think that's a valid point. But uh, it, it does, I mean, I, I'm sure, Grant, you would say that what it does is it sets it up for the next rider that when they come through, they're going to be the ones that are, they're going to also have to pay. It makes everybody pay, I guess. But yeah. Everybody yeah. pays, and if everybody pays easily, they're thinking to themselves, "Gee, I'm not charging enough. I better raise the price." <laughs> raise the raise <laughs> Sorry, the rate. me for that one, then. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you so, you always have to at least argue and make it a bit difficult. If you just pay, I think you're just setting it up for higher numbers, and everybody's going to end up paying. So if I arrive at a border and the border guard demands a large sum of money, the first thing I'm going to say is, "Graham Field ahead of me." <laughs> yeah, he just gave me a blank check. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the next topic we were going to talk about was um, how your gear, bike, and bling affect your reception or experience, which I like this topic. and I'm pretty excited about this one because I think everybody has an opinion about this. And it's difficult. It's a tough one, isn't it? Now, what we're talking about here is having the, the fancy gear, which, you know, everybody likes good gear. Everybody likes quality gear. Gear nowadays is covered with logos, it seems. Um, I bought a, a climb jacket uh, several years ago, and I was really stunned. As a matter of fact, the thing I couldn't get over was, or the thing I didn't really like, was all the logos on it. It just seemed to be covered. I was like a, a walking billboard. So how do you guys feel about this? You know, do you have examples? Um, have you have you traveled with somebody who had a lot of bling, a lot of flash? Um, have you run into something? And do you have an opinion about it? Let's start off with the Rixes. Oh, um, we don't have particularly good expensive gear and quite often, it, as all travellers, it gets really dirty and grotty. But I think sometimes if you present yourself well, particularly at borders, um, well, they don't care if your boots are clean, but if you um, present yourself well and don't look as though you're um, some kind of hooligan on your way on your way somewhere, we've been told about people having huge problems at borders and there's been three blokes on single bikes and they've all got trashy gear, the bikes are trashy and uh, we come in two up on one bike and being maybe a little older and being a couple, we don't have any problems at all. And I guess that is something to do with with how, how we appear, even uh, you know, just being two up sometimes makes that difference. Yeah, but the other thing is, if your bike looks expensive, you know, all right, I ride a, a nice BMW, and I don't like to be broken down every uh, hundred kilometres, and that's the reason why I have a reasonable bike. But um, uh, I also don't clean it that much. Uh, I have a dirty, ratty old bike cover to throw over it, so when it's parked anywhere, it's just a bike cover, um, and it's got stickers on it as a as a traveller. But uh, that's how I like to do it. But um, as far as my riding gear is. I'm with you there, Jim. I don't like all these logos and everything. Um, as soon as I get them, I'll try and roll around the dirt and scrub them off, actually. <laughs> Graham? Um, it's not something that I've had to worry about, really. <laughs> 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 uh, having said that, um, this time last year, Revit gave me a, a, a pants and jacket uh uh, sort of with like triple layer Gore-Tex insulate and the armored layer and that, and it is 
the first time in my life I've had brand new equipment. I normally get it off of eBay. And, uh, and it was so sparkly new. And it, it was only when I saw myself, and, oh, my God, I look like a Power Ranger, that <laughs> I, I became self-conscious. And I did exactly the same as Brian did. I, I got, when I got down, I started the trip in, in Colorado. And when I got down to the desert in Texas, I just rolled around on the desert floor trying to tone myself down a little bit. But, that's, uh, but I mean, that was only in my own head just uh, because uh, I did I, – I just – I, I, I buy new helmets when I need a new helmet, but the bike and everything else, everything is secondhand. Everything's eBay. That's how I can afford my trips. That's how I do it. So being blinged out is is never a cross I've had to bear, really. Sam? Yeah, I, I agree with Brian and Shirley. Um, I think if you your gear is um, neat and tidy um, and you look clean and organized, then that stands you in really good stead. And it doesn't matter where you're going as a traveler. It's a way of showing respect. Um, I, I think when I started off on um, my big trip, there were very few people um, who were overlanding. And most people who were overlanding were doing it on a really tight budget. And so I didn't see very many people wearing um, really nice kit. But over the last years, you know, um, technology has advanced hugely. And so the availability of, of really top-rate Gore-Tex and all of the rest of it um, has increased quite dramatically. And I think that when all of this sort of stuff first started coming out, you know, riding through some countries, you would have looked as if you were in the Paris-Dakar with all of the logos and everything else on. But I think that there are sufficient people travelling now, except in the really off-the-beaten-track places, where... Um, you know, the kit with the badges and so on doesn't stand out quite so much as, as a sore thumb and, you know, being, you know, that much out of the ordinary. Um, but having said that, I kind of like to just sort of ease in and out of places being as least obvious as possible. So, um, yeah, Graham made me laugh when he talked about going and rolling around in the sand because I've done exactly the same thing. <laughs> Who's making the tea? Oh, sorry. I just put. I just went up and put some whiskey in my glass. <laughs> He's getting the nerve up for the next story. I thought I got away with it as well. <laughs> no, we knew exactly what you were doing. You know, people do judge um, other people by their covers. Um, so, in other words, they do judge by um, the amount of kits you've got. And if you look really um, swanked up and so on, then you know perhaps you're making yourself more vulnerable because you look wealthier. I don't know. Um, like I think the cop that pulls you over at the side of the road is certainly going to look at what you're wearing and how you're dressed. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was just going to use that as an example as well. I mean, if someone wants a bribe from you, don't they sort of judge what they ask? I mean, maybe not in Graham's case with the $300, but don't they normally judge what they're going to ask for by what you're riding and how you look? But what do you, what do, you do? I mean, you, every motorbike that we would travel on, all of us, would be, even if it's a really old one, would be really expensive and a valuable piece to most of the people that we would encounter on our travels. Yeah, exactly. Most people look at it, our bike is worth two and six now. It's got over 200,000 kilometres on the clock. But we ride in on a BMW and people immediately think, ah, cashed up foreigners because they think it's a really expensive bike. And to them, even at the value it is now, they couldn't afford to buy it. So they think that we're wealthy people. Oh, that's a very good point. But what I would say is, are there degrees? Do they look at some and go, okay, I mean, everyone who comes through here is, is wealthier than me because they're traveling and I couldn't afford to do it. But do some shinier ones look like a better target, I guess? 
Well, you know, I, this isn't my story, but um, Tom, who uh, who does Adventure Bike TV, told me a story about how he did a very two similar trips in Africa, and one was on a ratty, dirty, knackered bike, and another was a very similar trip, but was on a fully blinged out, fully sponsored BMW, and he said. There was no difference in the reception other than the fact that when he was on the gorgeous bike, he would get, when he'd go into these poorer villages, this awe and this and this respect. And uh, and people just loved it. They didn't see him as a, as a walking bank account or as a sort of rich and privileged person because, as Shirley said, we are all rich when we get to these poorer countries, regardless of our bikes. They don't they don't judge it by a bit of dirt or a few scratches. And so his um, his reaction is, you know, to be on a lovely bike gets a, a reaction of, of awe and respect and and a, and a bigger crowd, which uh, maybe isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's uh, he didn't paint it as a bad thing anyway. Yeah, I had the experience in Africa and South America. Lots of times, people would ask, "How much does this bike cost?" Mm. And at first, I was to giving them really low numbers like oh twelve hundred dollars or a thousand dollars and they'd be oh a lot of money a lot of money so even no matter what you tell them the number is or what they think the value is it's a lot of money no matter what and when i in south america i remember telling one guy it was six thousand dollars or something and he said oh that's not too bad <laughs> okay <laughs> you know every country is different and people understand often what things are worth and then they, they don't understand but I think it doesn't really matter no matter what you're riding as uh, Sam was saying they can't afford what you've got no matter so, how much or how little you've got so another question would be then look at it this way does a more high-end outfit I mean Graham you mentioned about the story from Tom about the having a higher-end outfit and people sort of ooh and odd so look at this if you pull up to the border in a higher-end outfit do you look more powerful um, and therefore, maybe someone who that they would want to mess with less, somebody who has more means than somebody who travels just on an old KLR. Possibly, yes. Your lawyer could be in the backup vehicle behind you. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you, you know, or you might be that type of person, but because you have all this fancy stuff that you get things done, you know, it's just a little intimidating for someone who doesn't have much. I think it's very important that you you'd go in looking like a substantial person. In other words, you don't want to go in there super grubby, you know, beard 19 days growth and looking horrible and even smelling a little bit like some people do. Uh, <clears throat> no, no comments. Uh, <laughs> in other words, you're, you're a dirty, grubby backpacker or a dirty, grubby biker, and they really don't even want you in the country. So you, you almost have to bribe them to let you in. Whereas if you go in looking like a um, respectable business person, you know, looking clean, you shaved this morning or trimmed your beard for some of us, um, you're clean and everything's nice, you look respectable as opposed to a bum. And when you think about it, border guards, and those of us in North America particularly know this, they really don't want the bums coming in. They don't want people that are going to be a problem. They don't want people that are going to be a burden on their economy. They want people who have money, and they want people who are going to spend that money in their country. Sam, I think it was you that was say, that has said before about putting on your cleanest clothes, basically, and, you, and you, I think you even mentioned today, out of respect. Yep. That's exactly right. And there are times when you really want to do this, and such as going to get a visa or a letter of recommendation. And yes, of course, border crossings. Um, and it, it is respect. 
Um, but I mean, it, it's also, for example, you know, you're off the bike and um, you've gone into the market. So what clothes do you wear when you go bargaining for food in the market? Um, well, we would wear beat up tatty clothes that were still clean and neat and tidy and they may have holes patched on them and so on but you know we'd obviously made the effort but we just didn't look as if we had lots of money and bargaining in the markets was shed loads easier because of that if we'd gone in looking really scruffy and dirty people would have just looked down their noses at us if we'd gone in there in very expensive you know immaculate clothing then God, bargaining would have been incredibly difficult to do so there's a balance um, Grant, when he was talking, used um, respectful, I think, four times. Yes, something like that. <laughs> well, that's, that's the key, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And, I, and one of the things I've really noticed in, in even the poorest possible countries is that there's a, most of the people are wearing very clean clothes. Like, you see the women out there washing in the river. They're wearing clean clothes. And if you go in there in grubby clothes, you're obviously a pretty low-class person. And just like anywhere else, they don't want to deal with you. It's also um, respecting their culture. When we were in Iran, it was a real pain in the neck for me to have to wear the scarf and try and get the helmet on and off and not offend people by showing my hair. But that's the way they live, and you respect that. It's like you, you meet people outside a cathedral somewhere and they're complaining because they're not allowed inside because they've got shorts on. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm I wouldn't go into St. Patrick's Cathedral in my home city of Melbourne in a pair of shorts and a singlet top because it's not respectful for the people who are in there worshipping. So you do have to respect the cultures and, and not walk around as if you own the place. Yeah, I can throw out a little story that, that really shows lack of respect. Um, we went diving at Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt a number of years ago and and then the last day, you can't dive, so you go to the beach and just sit and relax. And what we were seeing there, <clears throat> this is a Muslim country, and the Muslim women are there in full shador, going swimming in these, these full black outfits. Uh, and there's European women there who are topless, sitting on the beach, topless. And what are the um, local men doing? They're walking around with their eyes bugged out. And... What that says about Western culture to the locals is not a good thing. Mm. So you have to show respect. You have to be polite and fit in with the local mores. You just can't try and impose your culture on them. It's not a good thing either way. It's kind of strange yeah. that you have to even say that because, you know, if you go to somebody's house and they take their shoes off at the door, everybody automatically takes your shoes off at the door. I mean, you do it out of respect, the same sort of thing. So it's surprising that somebody would go to a country and, and do that, just what you explained. Yeah, it, it was absolutely mind-boggling to us. We just couldn't believe that people were doing that. It was, like, amazing. I've seen Grant, the same and, thing um, in Kawa. Go on, Sam. Okay, um, and it's really funny that you've just said Goa because... <laughs> I met a guy, um, an Indian guy, in Madras or Chennai, and he was running tours for men only to Goa and supplying the, his passengers, his clients, with binoculars so that they could all go down to the beach at Goa and look at the topless tourist girls. Yeah, <laughs> who then say, oh, those Indians, they're such pervs. But, yeah, you know, that's the word. The, 
the difference is these people have flown in on a plane for their two-week package holiday. They don't give a shit about culture or respect or anything. They're just there to, to drink, eat, sun, beach, sand, sex, and go home again. Whereas, and this is the big difference, if you're traveling overland, regardless of your form of transport, it's a gradual transition and, 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 a, and a longer time span. And you've you get to witness it, understand it, appreciate it, and 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 blend in a little bit more and, and respect it. And um, I think that's the difference between you. I I, I I defy you to find an overland to get off their motorcycle and take off all their clothes on a beach of of you know people who are, who are fully clad. You know that just wouldn't happen, would it? Uh, I don't know. I thought I, I, thought I saw was it Graham uh, in um, Las Vegas, the <laughs> totally wandering into the desert. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, seem to, to remember having seen a photograph of Graham with not many clothes on somewhere. Yeah, I think we all have. <laughs> but, right now I'm feeling sorry for Graham. <laughs> where this conversation started um, about um, your gear and bike and bling and does it affect your reception and, um, and so on. Um, one of the thoughts that I, I've got constantly in my mind is that if you look as if you're around a bit, then you look as if you're not green, you're not wet behind the ears, you're not so vulnerable. If you're looking immaculate as if you've just stepped off the plane for the first time, and um, then you are vulnerable. If you're looking a little bit beat up and a little bit worn, but still respectfully clean and tidy, then I think you look less vulnerable. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Yep. Okay, well, the, the this next one was Graham's suggestion, and it's Rider Health, and, and I think I expanded a little bit about uh, from what Graham had there, but um, medical coverage problems, um, and what do you think the the minimum coverage would be? And one of the other the other questions I had was uh, that I put in here was should we be comfortable going into any hospitals? And it's kind of uh, Graham. I mean, you've just been into a, a different hospital. Have you ever been in a Bulgarian hospital before that? <laughs> no, I hadn't been. In, in, I've never stayed a night in a hospital in my life before the incident in Bulgaria last month. And how long was that? It was nine days. Nine days. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's a long time. So let's let's talk about medical coverage. Does anyone have any ideas on medical coverage and what? Are, sir, I think the bare minimums to talk about to begin with that we should be looking at. At the very I, minimum, yeah. you need medical insurance for yourself, for sure. And evacuation insurance to go with it, but certainly the medical insurance. Uh, we had a girl, Polish-American, who was riding around the world. She was in northern Africa somewhere and had a major head-on accident. Uh, they eventually medevaced her back to the U.S., and she is effectively broke for life now. She had no insurance, and when asked why she didn't have insurance, she said, I couldn't afford it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. I've been in hospital in Greece, Namibia, South Africa, Australia, India, Nepal, and Chile. And I suspect that my travel insurance company's probably gone bust. Is that a tour you did? Um, was, yeah, I'm, I'm actually an expert. I, I think my next book will be about um, the inside of hospitals around the world. <laughs> I am a disaster magnet and I'm famous for it, but I always come out smiling. Well, I know you had, um, I remember reading about your, your one major accident that you had there. Uh, what did you think of the medical coverage you got? I, I guess it's sort of tough to talk to all of them, but what did you think of it? Did you worry about it to begin with, and did you think it was substandard? 
Um, in Greece, it was substandard. In Namibia, um, one of the hospitals was decidedly substandard and the other was absolutely superb. South Africa, superb. Australia, superb. Um, India was really good. I was very surprised. And Nepal looked a little bit scruffy around the edges, but actually was um, very neat and tidy. Um, Chile was absolutely superb. I had no idea we were going to have somebody who's an absolute expert on the hospitals. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> incredible. <laughs> I mean, when, when you're asking about minimum coverage, Grant got it absolutely right. Repatriation's got to be one of the key things. And you've got to be covered enough to be treated in private hospitals where possible because a lot of the public hospitals really aren't very good. Um, and I think it's worth um, having a look to see what the cost of hospital treatment in um, the most expensive country that you're going to be going to. And actually, you know, the insurance companies, they tend to work this out anyway. Um, and the United States of America is the most expensive country that I've come across as far as um, medical insurance is concerned. And one of the keys with um, medical insurance is to make sure that you are actually covered for the size of bike that you're, you're riding because many of them, they talk about travel insurance and then the small print, you've got a maximum of 125 cc's allowed. Um, some of the insurance policies don't um, allow you air transportation cover and I'm not talking about repatriation, I'm talking about let's say um, you fall off in the middle of the desert in Namibia um, and some policies will pay for you to be picked up by a Land Rover. Um, if you've had a big time prang, that's not very funny. So you need to be looking for a policy that's going to cover you to be picked up by helicopter or by light plane, that sort of thing. Um, it's it's worth paying the extra money. What Grant told, said just now about this, this girl, um, my goodness, um, I would still be in debt and I would probably be in debt for the rest of my life had I not been insured properly. And I met people all the time who are riding bikes on big trips and hadn't bothered to get insurance, medical insurance, and I used to fear for them because it doesn't matter how in control you are, there's always what some other numpty is going to be doing that comes in from the side and then you can be stuffed. I think saying you can't afford insurance is like saying I can't afford a visa. It, you budget it in your trip. It is imperative. It is as important as the motorcycle as anything else. You've got to have insurance. Not saying yeah. you can't afford it is a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah, if you can't afford the insurance, you can't afford the trip. It's very basic. Yeah. Yep. That's basically what I say too, Grant. And uh, I've had experiences of um, medical assistance in Vietnam which was absolutely fantastic in um, North Vietnam. Um, Greece, I agree, is very ordinary. Um, South Africa, the services are pretty good. So, yeah, and, and, I, and we both agree that um, before we decide on a trip, we've got to make sure we're, we're covered uh, for evacuation insurance at least. Yeah, there's lots of good evacuation insurance companies out there. We deal regularly with Ripcord and Medjet. They're both very good. Um, they both will pick you up, fly you out, fly you home, whatever. And it's, it's not that expensive. We're talking $400 a year per person. Why wouldn't you buy that? I mean, they will literally pick you up in, in the farthest reaches of the Himalayas in a helicopter and get you home. Crazy is that regardless of your is that regardless of your nationality grant is that available to everybody yes all right yeah uh, ripcord who we're working with quite closely now is actually working on a travel insurance policy coupled with the evacuation insurance policy for everybody currently they're only us 
for both of them together, but they're working on having it. In fact, they're supposed to have it this month, I think, where they can give you proper travel medical insurance and evacuation insurance all in one. That's fantastic. Grant, have you come across any companies um, that will do something that I haven't heard of recently? Um, when I was flown from the Medivac from Chile back to the UK, our insurance policy covered Birgit to be flown back at the same time. But then when I was well enough to carry on traveling, the insurance policy covered to fly us back to the country where we were picked up. Mm, I haven't heard of that question. That's unusual. Mm. I, I haven't would seen be, it around for a while. Yeah, I wouldn't expect it. Um, the reality is that that's kind of your problem. Um, I don't know. I think that's a, that's probably a bit of a stretch to get that. And it's good that they, it. the fact that they fly your partner as well, I think that's important to make sure. Some, some policies will fly a family member from your home country to where you are to accompany you home. I think that would be a comforting thing too if you'd had a big off to have someone someone with you coming some, home? Some people like that. The other the other issue with insurance is um, some of them have an age limit. 75 seems to be a very high limit. Um, there's even some insurance companies that won't cover you over 65. That's yeah. getting to be very frustrating. I know a lot of people are having problems. <laughs> Sam mentioned about the, the fine print and the one policy saying you couldn't write anything over a 125. I mean, you really have to know every question you could imagine. How do you figure out what policy is going to be the best? It takes a lot of reading and a lot of looking. We've been working on this for, for like 20 years, and we still haven't been able to come up with the perfect policy. We have high hopes for Ripcord. Um, one of the things that we have discussed with them is that it must cover any size of motorcycle anywhere, and they've agreed that, yes, we will make sure that's in there. Uh, the, the 125cc limit is very often you – people ask, it, it, am I covered on a motorcycle? And they say, yes, and you're happy. But the 125cc limit is because they're expecting you to fly to a Caribbean island and ride around on a local scooter. That's their idea of motorcycle coverage. You got it, so you've really got to watch that one. A lot of people have been caught by that. So any other things that we should be looking at when we're looking at a policy? I mean, I'm sure there's tons, but I mean, are there any are blaring ones or the ones that pop into your mind? I mean, that, the bike size is obviously very important, and, and that's something that could easily catch you up by just asking if you're covered for a bike. Um, and, and of course, um, you, you want to make sure that you're, you've got some sort of coverage to be evacuated from the spot that you're in. And if yeah, you're that. going to be away more than 12 months, that you can renew your policy on, on the, the road, road yeah. away from your country of origin, and a lot of insurers won't let you do that. So you have yeah. to find an insurer when you're halfway through your trip. Yeah, that happens a lot. I've seen even three months or six months. One of the things to watch out for um, is to be absolutely 100% honest when you're making your application. If you hedge your bets on any of the details that you're filling in, then there's a very good chance that the insurance company, if, if things do go pear-shaped for you, um, will find something that you've lied about by omission, if nothing else. Um, and all of a sudden, you find that you aren't actually covered. No, we just had a lawyer on a few episodes ago, and we talked about that sort of thing. I mean, the insurance companies really, I mean, from their point of view, they're always looking for any way not to pay. And, and I mean, that's that's the way things work, right? I mean, if you, you're you going to make sure that you're required to pay out big money before you actually do it as a company for anything. And, and that's what they, they look at is those loopholes. They're looking for any sort of way that they can find a way not to pay for you. Yeah, I look at it as... On the day that I make my claim, my claim is going to go first to a lawyer who's going to see if he can find a way to get out of paying. Then they'll go towards 
getting something done and getting things paid. So if you look at it from that point of view, you realize you have to be absolutely honest and careful, like Sam said. That's very important. With um, um, medical insurance, one of the things that um, I found out by experience, um, it's really important to have easily accessible the contact details for your travel insurance company because if something does go wrong, then you need to be able to say, here's my insurance company details, not go and dig in the bottom of my locked pannier that's lying mangled, strapped to the side of my bike and not very openable. Um, because or you're in the hospital and the bike is somewhere else being p- taken care of at yep. the police station and you don't have any papers with you. Yep, exactly. Have those contact details right to hand. I mean, I spent four hours lying in a corridor in Chile um, while my insurance company details were being sorted out. And, and, that, and even then, you know, we had those details to hand and Birgit was dealing with them. I was just flying on morphine. It was lovely. Not. <laughs> That's a, a, another spot where your online mail like Gmail or Yahoo or whatever is very handy. You know, you mail that stuff to yourself. And even if you lose everything else, you can always resort to that um, and then find your information. Yeah, we recommend everybody photocopy all their documents, multiple copies of everything, um, and have paper with them, but also have everything scanned and online and ready to download. You can walk into an internet cafe naked because you've just been thoroughly mugged and get get access to your stuff. What about the zipper that you see on some jackets? Uh, I think it's on the left hand. My jacket has one little zipper and a little star stitched on there that's supposed to uh, be a place, I understand, to put your medical information. Yep, I do it. Absolutely. Anyone else? No. I haven't come across that. Huh. I, I thought it was a, a more common thing because it made me wonder if, you know, if only if it's only on my jacket and Grant's jacket, I mean, how many people are going to know if you were unconscious to, to zip that open and pull that information out? Yeah, you can put a medical alert or you can put Red Cross on it, anything to make it obvious what's going on. Medical professionals, don't forget, are better at understanding those sort of things and they know what to look for. I mean, if you're a medical professional and you see a guy lying, lying in the road, um, you're going to start doing all that kind of checking, aren't you, pretty quickly? Um, one of the things that you were talking about was, um, should we be comfortable going into any hospital? And that started me thinking about, well, okay, so you're on the road, you've not had a major accident, but um, something's gone pear-shaped and you need hospital treatment. How do you decide which is a good hospital and which is a bad hospital? When this happened to me the first time, then um, my first thought was, I'll get in touch with the British Embassy because they'll know which is the good nearest hospital to me. But to my surprise, um, the British Embassy wasn't prepared to recommend a hospital. And I was mm-hmm. bit. What, what do you mean? You won't? And I guess it's all something to do with liability and all the rest of it. I don't know. But anyway... We found out in the end that the best way to find um, decent hospitals was to hunt out expats, but also um, go to a pharmacy. The pharmacists normally know which is a good hospital and which isn't. And a decent hotel, the reception staff there usually know where the best hotel is. Yeah, good. Best hospital, rather, to direct their guests. Yeah, and if I'm feeling really sick and not in good shape, I will always look for the best hotel in town. Because if I'm even in really bad shape and I can't get to a hospital, they really don't want their guests dying in their hosp- in their hotel. So they're going to call a doctor or something and take care of you. Uh, whereas <laughs> the lowest level flea bag, they may not even notice. But a good quality hotel, for starters, it's also very much nicer. you got an in-room bathroom and all the rest of it. It's much nicer. Good plan. Yeah, that's a good point. That's actually a very good point. I mean, if, you're, if a person's traveling and they start to feel ill, 
um, it's actually kind of important that they let somebody know, especially if they're traveling on their own, um, that they are, you know, getting under the weather. Um, it's happened to me twice, and um, I've got ill so fast that um, within a day I've not been able to get out of my bed. And um, yeah, it's been a close call both times because I wasn't sensible enough to say to somebody else, e.g., the receptionist, um, "I'm going to bed, but I am really not well. Keep an eye on me." Yeah, I think, and that's why we always make sure that we're, if we're not feeling well, we head for a good hotel quickly. Uh, same thing as when we land in a new country. We always go for a good hotel first until we figure out what's going on. The uh, the good hotel thing, I was cycling uh, in Thailand and I, I'd got an eel. And, and uh, just, it wasn't bad eel. It was just, you know, I needed to be by a toilet all the time. And when you're cycling, because it's so physically uh, you know, demanding. You simply cannot ride or travel when when you're when you're feeling like that. And I stayed in this awful concrete room with no furniture, with a bed in the middle of the room, with a squat toilet, with no door. And I stayed there for two days. And oh. next door to it, next door to it was this beautiful plush hotel. It had guards on the gates, and it was it was beautiful plants and gardens. And uh, after two days, I started feeling better and just started going out and walking the streets just to get my strength back. Saw this gorgeous hotel. Thought, oh, it would have been lovely to have been ill in that hotel instead of my concrete cell. Uh, when I finally got going, got cycling again and got to the next town a few days later where, where travellers again sort of congregated and uh, spoke about this town I'd been in and uh, in this cell that I'd been uh, in, and they said, oh, we stayed in the hotel next door to that. It was only $7 a night. (laughs) 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 The lesson I learned is, no matter how nice it looks, ask the price, because you might be able to afford it. (laughs) Yeah, we we flew from, um, or took the ferry from Europe to Tunisia, and Susan was looking online, because in those days, finally, it was just the beginning of being able to look online. We found out that the Sheraton Hammamet was $30 a night in the Sheraton. Hmm. So we said, right, $30 a night. We can afford that. So we stayed at the Sheraton Hammamet for a week. It was fantastic. The best food, the best hotel. It was wonderful. The other choice was just down the street, and it was $15 a night, and it was a dump. So yeah, check always ask. You never know. That's a, that's a really good tip. Well, so um, anybody else have anything for rider health? Uh, medication for those older older travellers, like some people, um, <laughs> when you need to have um, regular medication, what we tend to do, or what we do, is we get a letter from our doctor explaining what the medication is and what it's for, with not just the brand name but the medical. Um, mixture if you like but not a prescription per se and we take six months supply of medication and uh, then you've got when you finish Simply that because it can't fit any more in the pennies yep. uh, <laughs> when, you, when you finish that you've got a letter that you can take to a doctor and get um, a local prescription to be filled wherever you are but you need to keep the packet at least one packet with the um, the details of the drugs in it um, when we went into Uzbekistan, they wanted to see all our medication and they searched it and made sure that it was all the same thing and it didn't have codeine and things in it. They have so many restrictions. So you do need to keep at least one box in its intact packet so they can see what it comes from. Yeah, yeah I've seen it run into that before. You, 
a lot of people try and make it as small and compact as possible and throw away all the external packaging. Nope, you can't do that. You do have to make sure, as Shirley said, that they can understand what it is you've got and you're not smuggling some exotic narcotic or something. I was wondering if you were saying six months supply, Brian, because it's your, the medication's going in your pannier because you have the small one. <laughs> and he has more drugs, oh, so that's his problem. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start off with our picks, and um, let's start with Grant. Nope, make me last. Uh, <laughs> I don't have Grant one. Grant didn't do his homework. No, Grant, I have been so busy, it's just nuts. Graham? Yeah, well, having not fully understood the pick question last time, this time I've got a brilliant pick. But I'm hoping I'm not... Firstly, I'm hoping I'm going to be able to do it justice. And secondly, I hope I'm not going to go on too long. There is this guy who I met at a Horizons Unlimited meeting in Bulgaria last year. And although I missed his presentation, it was about this development that he's got. And he's got this thing, this piece of uh, hardware, and it's called my adventure logger and it goes on your motorcycle hides under the seat or something and it has gps and it has bluetooth connections and whenever you turn on your ignition it um starts registering what's going on now i i have just spent i don't know uh, the last 18 hours in the company of with the guy who's developed it and he's just given me uh, one of the prototypes and there's only uh, uh, Doug Watke has, has had a prototype for his trip to Egypt last year. Jack Lucasen's had a prototype that he's used on a, a trip that he did last year, and two of the people who developed it has. And what it is essentially, it's a little box that fits under your bike. And every time you take a photograph, be it on your phone or your camera, it will, when you get to a place with Wi Fi, the Bluetooth, I'm, I'm tying this slowly because I'm still understanding it as I say, the Bluetooth in the box will connect with your phone. It will lo know exactly the location where that photo was taken. And then when you stop, be it uh, a few hours or a few days or a few weeks later, you, with the app on your phone, this My Adventure Logger app, you then upload it to their website. And you have your own page on their website. So anybody can see where you've been and your photos will then be put on there. But it's not just about keeping your photos. It's about every aspect, whether you found a great place to camp, whether you found a good hotel, um, whether this is where you had your accident on your bike. It logs everything and it all goes to their website. But the brilliant thing is, well, there's lots of brilliant things. But one of the things is you have a sticker on your pannier. We all love stickers. And it says, follow me because... Uh, Generally, I think when if you when you're when you're not on the road, when you see an adventure bike with its panniers, it kind of stops you in your track, and you look at it, and you look around it, and you see where it's been and what have you. Well, it has a follow me sticker and a QR code, and then you can see where the bike's from, where it's been, and everything. And so it's not it's and this kind of relates to what we were talking about in the last raw episode and the whole blogging thing. This is an effortless this way of showing where you've been and what you've seen without spending hours in front of the laptop doing your blog or doing your website or what have you it also is able to the the, the potential is enormous because it's able to put other people with this uh with this logger in touch with each other if you're in the same vicinity it's able to locate your bike should it go missing overnight and 
it's as I say, it's still in its infancy. It's just being developed. They're hoping to get it actually on the road, uh, actually uh, up and, and and running and available uh, later on this year. And it's uh, it's it. You know, normally when people come up and they say, oh, "I've got this great new idea," I just uh, you know you listen with with a certain amount of skepticism. And uh, these people are passionate. They're enthusiastic. The, one of the main guys developed it used to work in Silicon Valley. He absolutely knows what he's doing i met this other guy who's his last night who's this crazy inventor dude you only have to look in his eyes and uh, in this dusty workshop with this uh, sort of log burner that runs on diesel and all these dusty electronic things and and uh, and a genius and uh, a brandy drinking genius who uh, has developed uh, the, the actual box so it's it's an incredible thing that they're doing and I'm not, I knew, and especially because when we started this conversation, I had to close all my windows because my reception wasn't very good, that my description of this isn't very good. So what I've done and what I did before this show started was I put a link on my website, which just says logger. And if you go on there, it, it shows you what this little piece, it's the size of a cigarette packet, what this little thing is. It shows you what it does so much better than I could possibly begin to explain. But I think this is going to be huge. This, like I said, goes back to what we were talking about uh, on the last Raw episode about spending too much time in front of the internet, too much time updating. It's it's going to log everything. It goes straight on. All that data is taken without you having to – or you can just leave your phone uploading while you go out and have your dinner, and it's done. And uh, the potential for this thing, I think, is enormous, and it's called My Adventure Logger. And uh, you can look at their website or easier, you can go to my website and look at the logger tab. And uh, if, if you want to try and work out what the hell I'm on about, you can look at that and it will explain it so much more articulately and eloquently than I've just done it. No, oh, that sounds interesting. And your website is gramfield.co.uk. That's right. Okay, that was a good one. Sam? Oh, right, okay. Um, well, I want to talk about um, overlandjunction.com. Um, I don't know whether any of you guys have heard about it yet, but it's been bouncing around Facebook and um, various forums over the last week since it's been launched. Um, it's a, a new site, and it's dedicated to adventure motorcycling and overlanding. And it's not a magazine. Um, it's it's not a, um, a site for advertising events, and it's not a discussion forum. There are you know there are lots of, of really good examples of those already. So. Um, what this is doing is it's it's found um, a gap um, in amongst the other sites that are to do with um, overlanding and adventure motorcycling. Um, it um, includes contents from all sorts of contributors around the world. Um, it's, it acts as a platform for research. So, for example, if you want to look into um, hard luggage versus soft luggage, then there are all sorts of um, posts and connections and so on. Um, if you want to have a look at the ideal spec for around-the-world motorcycle, then you'll find that there as well. And Overland Junction has got a fairly big heart in that it's also supporting for non-profit organizations. And um, one of the things that I really like about it too is that it's going to be funding a modest financial grant once a year to help a solo rider begin a new journey. And I think that's very cool. Uh, one of the keys for the site is something called Milestone. And if you click on um, overlandjunction.com, um, you'll find Milestone sitting in the, um, in the, uh, 
the bar at the top there. And uh, you just um, click on the explore the map. And um, this takes you to a map and there are all sorts of pointers for stories and information about um, different parts of the world. So if you're planning a trip, just visually in one hit, you can pick out all sorts of information which can help you plan your journey. Um, I think it's going to run very nicely and compatibly with... Um, other um, organizations around and I'm being very careful when I'm saying this because of course Grant's sitting there <laughs> um, it's it's something that's actually going to slot in very nicely next door to Horizons Unlimited and when um, I was first mentioned the idea um, a few months back I thought gosh is there a space for this but as it's as I've watched it growing um, yeah, I've become very impressed with it. So um, I think um, everybody needs to, to get themselves armed with a cup of tea or several beers and, um, yeah, sit down and have a meander through this site. I think people will be surprised. So it's overlandjunction.com. Good pick, Sam. How about you, Shirley and Brian? I, I assume we're putting yours together. Yeah, we'll put ours together. Look, ours is a little bit more functional than uh, these guys out there on the net with all their stuff. But um, I really have fallen in love with a little MicroStart uh, mini uh, starter, battery starter. Um, you know, when it was all right in the days when uh, most motorbikes had a Kickstarter. Uh, if your battery failed, um, you could uh, kickstart the bike. And my opinion, passenger, is a bit beyond pushing a big, heavy BMW now if the battery fails. So... Um, um, uh, I found these uh, mini microstart things, and uh, for a little bit bigger than a, a passport, uh, a, 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 your, your, your passport, uh, I think uh, they're a damn good thing. I actually started three bikes uh, with this uh, little starter thing that I carry now, and um, it charges up everything from your computer, your phone, and everything else. You can charge it off the bike uh, when you're going along anyway, and. Uh, I um, carry it with me most most places now, and when I develop my little cafe racer and uh, its electrics were a little bit unreliable, I'd carry that in my pocket as well. So um, for anyone who's, who wants to travel and travel independently, you, sometimes you just can't get a battery if your battery fails in the middle of nowhere, uh, which has happened to me. Um, these uh, mini microstarts are a great little backup and uh, can be used for all sorts of things. So I'd uh, recommend, I know they've been... Uh, pushed on the uh, televisions and all that sort of stuff here at the moment but um for the one that i use it can it can jump start a v6 car but uh um i don't need it for that just uh, the big bmw thanks i just wonder how much they cost uh, i i got mine off the internet and i think it was i think they're down to about 140 150 uh, australian dollars um so for me that's pretty damn good value good backup I'm using one that's cost about um, £75. And Brian, everything that you said, I totally, totally agree. You know, my bike, Libby, she's a 1992 R80 GS BMW and she's elderly and she lives outside and corrosion is always uh, an issue with the wiring. And um, these old BMWs don't like to start when it's cold anyway. And um, sometimes, even though, um, because I ride a lot, the battery's in good condition, um, cold starts, she doesn't like it. And um, just clip on this thing within seconds and bang, um, she's up and running. Um, such a good bit of kit. Total peace of mind, aren't they? I'm glad you guys said that because I haven't tried one. I keep looking at them in the store there and, and they seem to be quite popular. They've got a bunch of different sizes, but I wasn't sure sort of how much oomph they were going to have, you know, in the real world. 
Yeah, well, mine started a, a Harley Davidson, a 800 GS, and uh, some other bike out of a container at a dock, and uh, still had plenty of charge in it. And mine's the Mini XP5, which is about mid-range, so it's got plenty of go for all that sort of stuff. What make is it again, Brian? It's called Micro Start, M-I-C-R-O dash Start. Um, but there's heaps of them out there, and I, I really think uh, for someone who who's uh, travelling uh, independently or uh, needs uh, has something a little bit unusual where you can't just go and get a car battery, these are a great thing. Yeah, and I guess you, you could also use it to, to charge cell phones. It would be very easy to wire up a... Um uh, you know, a little uh, plug for it to, to put on, uh, like to clip the... Oh, Jim, the whole kit comes with that. It's got its own uh, mini yeah, attachment. USB, so for USB devices. Yeah, so it's all got it. It's got it all. Wow, that's nice. Yeah, good pick. Grant? Well, I've been so busy getting all our events launched, plus the calendar contest, that I've been having a little shortage of time to find a pick. But one thing I did see recently that was fascinating, I was sort of semi-aware they existed, but then I did a search, and there's all kinds of them, is a Pico projector, P-I-C-O projector. There's lots of different brands, all kinds of different sort of things. But if you can imagine the size of a cigarette pack, connect it to your USB, to your PC or your smartphone or whatever, and you can do a full-size three-foot by four-foot or so slideshow anywhere, anytime with this thing that's the size of a cigarette pack. That just blew me away. That could be handy, especially if you're looking to make friends somewhere. Yeah. If you, I mean, imagine you're halfway around the world and you're in a little village and people want to know, what are you doing? Well, you can show them pictures of all the places you've been with this tiny little gadget. Just All you mm. need is a dark room because they're not very bright, obviously. But a reasonably dark room and a white wall, and wow, amazing, fantastic stuff. I think that'd be a lot of fun to show in places in Africa. They're LED bulbs, aren't they, Grant? Though they'll yes. they'll survive bouncing around on the back of a bike. Yeah, absolutely. I would I mean you don't want to get too carried away, but uh, reasonable protection like you would with any electronic gadget, and it'd be fine. And there's all kinds of them, and they're like a hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars for a really good one, but a hundred and fifty bucks gets you something halfway decent. Hmm. That's really neat because, like, like uh, we were saying there, it, it, it almost covers two things. You, you've got a neat gadget there to show people where they're going to be impressed with it. You know, something like a, a conversation starter, and then you've got your photos. You know, the other thing that um, just sort of popped into my mind when I was looking at these, I thought, my God, you know, you could make this into your screen. If you're working on a smartphone or a little tablet and it's a little tiny and hard to see, project it onto a wall in your hotel and you can actually see at a decent size anything you want to work with. You can actually type on your tablet using this big screen. I think that'd be very cool. Well, my pick is something you guys probably know about already and probably some of you who tried it. It's the that Easy Air tire gauge from Best Rest. And it's brand new to me, so it's like the, the most exciting thing ever. But man, is it nice to have an accurate gauge with a pressure release. It's, it's, it's a gauge that's a fair size. It's um, uh, the size of the palm of your hand, really. And um, the hose that comes off it has a clip on it, which I find you know invaluable when it comes to, to airing up tires. You put it on the, on the stem, push it down, and it clips on. And it shows you the pressure. You can connect the pump to it because it's got another port on it. You put the to your to, for, to your compressor. So you plug it on there, and now the the gauge is between your your compressor and your tire. So it reads your pressure as it as it's pumping in. Not as accurate as it's pumping in, but you just shut the compressor off. You read your pressure. It's a little bit too high. You you press the release valve. You get it exactly where you want it and pop it off. It is the sweetest gauge that I've seen. So let's get on to um to plugs. Uh, we're going to talk about plugs. Um, let's start with Grant. 
We've got lots happening. We've been super busy getting a whole lot of events. I think we're over 20 events this year, getting all of that launched. We're almost done. We've only got about six to go. The Hub UK has been recently launched, and it's amazing the response we've had to that already. It's just flying in. We've had vendors contacting us before we even formally announced it, and uh, it's looking really good. Uh, the calendar contest is a biggie. If you go onto the Hub or onto Facebook, onto our page, and the group page, you'll find the calendar contest has been closed, but now you get to vote on your favorite calendar pick. That and that, those votes are going to count towards getting the calendar contest, uh, the calendar that's going to be coming out. We hope by about May or June, we should have that at our summer events. With, with the calendar thing, are they voting from like more photos than what you need? Yes, we have a total of 30 photos that are being shown out of the, I think, 600-odd that were submitted. So we're showing you the top 30, and you get to pick the top 13. That's pretty neat. So, so it's crowdsourcing the, the choices for it, so everybody has a say in what's on the calendar for next year. I like that. Yeah, it's, it's giving people a, a chance to say, we like this kind of photograph. And I think a lot of the photographers and travelers are out there are looking at who's winning and what kind of photographs do people want and what do they like? I can tell you, scenics and night shots are very big. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> <laughs> too many. Too, we had too many night shots this year. We actually had to say no to a number that were just absolutely fantastic. But you can't have twelve night shots in a calendar. No, that could get <laughs> so depressing. Lots of good stuff there. And the next contest is going to be opening up in a few weeks. So if you want to get in there, top prize is a TourTech riding suit, and second prize is TourTech suspension. So lots of really cool prizes coming up certainly worth sending a photo in for that graham uh right well firstly just going back to what grant was saying just flicking through and i think there were about 30 photos in the choice it was really good just to look through the photos and and, and like the ones that that were good because i mean they're all spectacular to make the final 30 was uh, of all the the crap you you scroll through on facebook that was certainly one of the more enjoyable things to look through and uh, and just look at the phenomenal photography it was a, a, a good thing to do um so yeah my plug is is the same as last time but only this time it's slightly more informed um as if you didn't catch the last time i've joined up with this company called let's ride bikes and this september we're doing a, a 10-day trip through europe and what has occurred to me um since we uh, since uh, i last spoke about it is how feasible and what a perfect time it is for North Americans to consider this for lots of reasons. Firstly, the pound is very weak at the moment, so your US and Canadian dollar goes a lot further in Europe than it has done previously. Secondly, world fuel costs are significantly cheaper than they have been for a long time. And I have done a little bit of research, and you can ship your bike if you're on the East Coast um, for about, well, for uh, about $1,200 if you're on the West Coast for about $1,300 to the UK. That is with a company who will do everything for you. All you have to do is take your bike to the to the port where they say. So with the cost of the actual trip, which is four and five star hotels, with the shipping of your bike, and because of the time span of it being about uh, the actual trip being 10 days with a little bit e either side of it, it's quite a feasible time to do it cost-wise. And just to recap what the trip involves, it begins and ends in the UK. And it uh, and 
the UK being located where it is, there is a, a couple of long days of riding, but it's all three, uh, four and five star hotels. And then you go up into the Alps, you get to do some really world class riding, you get to go to uh, down to Italy and, the, and see the Leaning Tower of Pisa. There's even uh, the, uh, the Super Rally, the big Harley Rally is included in that. And uh, and the more I thought about it, and I discussed it with this company, Motor Freight, who um, are offering to uh, to do the freighting of people's bikes across the Atlantic and back again. So there are now only five spaces left on the trip. And uh, I, I'm promoting it, obviously, because I'm involved in it. But also, you cannot deny that it is absolutely the right time to do something like this. Or whenever I go to the States, I always hear again and again, I'd love to go to Europe. I'd love to go to Europe. I'd love to see Europe. Well, this is, there isn't a better time. Your dollar is so strong against the pound. Fuel is so cheap. And if there was ever a time to go and take your bike to Europe and ride across those sort of roads and those sort of countries that you've heard about and read about, heard us speaking about, this is probably the time to do it. So, Let's Ride Bikes is the, is the company who does the tour, and Motor Freight are the people who will ship your bikes. So if you are interested, have a little look at their sites, have a little look at the destinations and the costs, and see if it's something that you might want to come and do with me. Graham, when you say $1,200 and $1,300, is, is that round trip? No, and that is because, let me go back to that window, they recommend... Uh, shipping your bike out hang on let me get this right Uh, we recommend sea freight from the USA to the UK Uh, the reason being uh, well it doesn't matter but that's what they recommend then they recommend flying back and it says here um, this is true only of North America so we recommend a turn of flying for example a BMW R1200GS or something similar the costs would be about um, $1,000, £1,000 to the East Coast, uh, £1,350 to the West Coast, um, plus a $60 US arrival clearance costs. So, uh, again, all those costs, are, uh, all those prices are available on the website, and there's links on my website, uh, grandfield.co.uk, uh, as well as seeing the actual itinerary and what's involved on the Let's Ride Bike website. And, and, and as Grant said last time, there's plenty of people who will freight bikes back and forth, but Motor Freight just this, uh, just a few weeks ago, won an award for, uh, I don't know, the best freighting. They won an award anyway for being the most conscientious and, uh, and, and one of the best shipping companies. And all they deal is in motorcycles. It's not just overland travel motorcycles. It's also if you go to Vegas to one of these prestigious auctions and buy yourself a 1952 Vincent, they also ship that and take it back to your country of the, of, of the buyer's origin. So uh, they, that's all they do, and that's what they do very well. And the big thing is they're going to get to go ride with you. <laughs> oh yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> a celebrity. <laughs> Good pick, Sam. Um, gosh, I'm going to feel really selfish now because Graham's been extolling the virtues of some very, very good um, organisations there, and I'm just going to talk about me. Well, you're allowed to do that. <laughs> um, I want to talk about audiobooks. Um, I don't remember what my plug was last time. But um, I hope I'm not plugging the same thing again. Otherwise, I shall be following very firmly in Graham Field's footsteps. But um, <laughs> I don't think you did. I'm trying to think. Does anyone else remember? 
I'll plug away. Plug away, Sam. If you don't, no one else will. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, audio books are particularly in my mind at the moment, um, in part because um, Graham Field and a bunch of other guys and I are all going to be at the London Motorcycle Show this week. And immediately after that, then I'm heading up to the Kite Studio in Cambridge. Now, Kite Studio are um, a really cracking organization because when I first decided that I wanted to put my books into audiobook format, I spent a year going from one recording studio to the next trying to find somebody that would let me do the narration. Every single company that I talked to said, no, sorry, mate, um, professionals do the narration in audio books. Um, do you think you could get a Stephen Fry? Yeah, well, <laughs> fat chance of that, hey. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to do the audio book myself, and I found myself in a little bit of a deja vu situation in that when um, I first wrote Into Africa, I spent two years chasing around trying to find a professional publishing house to take it on board. And the feedback that I was getting back from the publishing houses was, was the effect of, listen, you're not a media personality, so that means that your book's not going to sell well enough for us to be able to make a profit out of doing it. So, no, thank you. But we like your book. Um, and that just spurred me into self-publishing. Well, I was beginning to feel the same way about audiobooks. And the whole concept of audiobooks came about um, to begin with because I met a huge number of people at motorcycle shows who were listening and um, having a chat with me and asking questions. And then when I'm sort of giving them the book and saying, well, come on, give us your money then, um, they're saying to me, oh, I'm really sorry, I'd really like to, but I can't read. And I was thinking, what? You can't read? Um, what do you mean you can't read? Oh, well, I'm dyslexic. Um, I can't read. One of the reasons that I'm a motorcyclist is because it's a hobby and it's a sport that I can do where I don't have to read to be able to take part and to, to, to not feel disadvantaged. And, you know, this chewed away at me for quite a lot. Um, and then I started to talk to people who were saying about their big long commutes and um, going on holiday with a family and all of this sort of stuff. And I just thought, actually, you know, you really should have a go at doing an audio book. Um, then I started listening to um, Bernard Smith and he was talking about Kathy and her being blind. And, well, you know, that was the, the final nail in the coffin. I thought, right, I'm, I'm going to do this. So then the trail started. Um, refusals from... Um, recording studios all over the place until Kite Studio came along and the owner is a motorcyclist and he'd read Into Africa. So he said, yeah, go on, we'll take a punt. Well, I'm going to cut a long story short here. In spite of his, well, you know, we'll pull the plug on this if at any time you, it's just not working, um, Into Africa worked and then people were saying, can we have the next one under Asian skies? So that came out as well. And so far, I'm so pleased with the reviews that people have been putting in, particularly from from the United States. Um, but my news is, so long-winded blooming authors take a month Sundays to get to anything, don't they? Um, my news is straight after um, the, um, the London Motorcycle Show, I'm straight into the recording studio and I'm going to be working on recording Distant Suns, which is the third book in the series. And Distant Suns takes the listener, and that's nice to say instead of the reader, um, the listener through Southern Africa and then up through South America and through Central America. 
And for anybody who has listened or read Under Asian Skies um, and met Birgit for the first time, this is where they will hear um, the full story about how the two of us start trying uh, traveling together. And Birgit's only been riding a bike for 600 miles when we start riding together in Kenya. Um, it wasn't planned. Um, and her first dirt road, she does in the dark on the first day that we get the bikes out of the harbour. Can you imagine what it was like? And this dirt road was one of the gnarliest that I've ever ridden to date. And she did it, and she was absolutely phenomenal on this. Um, by the time we got to the end of the dirt road, I was just thinking, this is just awesome. She's going to be fabulous to ride with. But all I got was a pointed finger in my direction. Did you have to go so fast? I found it really difficult to keep up. I was only going far because she was sitting on my tail and I was afraid of, well, if I fell off, then she'd ride straight over the top of me. But um, anyway, so yeah, that's, um, that's what's happening next. And I'm hoping that um, it's going to be out towards the end of April, um, early May time. It depends on how many stuff-ups I do during the recording and therefore how much editing has to happen. That's great, Sam. That's good news. Wow. And uh, and the nice thing is I like about that is that you're re- you're reading your own book. And I, I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I mean, I guess everybody can't do it, but it's, it's great if you can, because it's nice to hear the, the person that wrote the book. But Audible books are fantastic. I mean, it, it, people listen to the same reason they listen to shows like this, is they're doing something else often, and they'll put it on while they're driving somewhere. It's just a, a fabulous way to be able to, to get to read something you may not otherwise get to read. So Shirley and Brian. Um, before I, I do our plug, um, I love audio books and I particularly love audio travel books read by the writer and one of my favourites is listening to Bill Bryson read Walk in the Woods. I've, I've listened to that two or three times. So, Sam, we will be going online to get your first two and we'll be waiting with great interest for your third. We, we have an audio book of our first book, which I don't know where you'd get it, but we should try and look at doing other ones. But our plug is um, the World Superbikes are coming to Melbourne, Australia, and we'll be there on the 26, 27 and 28 of this month. We'll be in the expo and you can see the bike and um, meet probably both of us, maybe just Brian, and uh, and buy a copy of uh, one of the two books which are out so far. I may well be at home finishing the third book rather than out enjoying myself. But the World Superbikes are always, always really good and for the Victorians or Australians who are listening, it's great because you can take your, your motorcycle into the um, track yes. confines, you don't have to leave it out in the car park on the other side of the road and uh, it's always good close racing and it's the first major event of the year so it's all woo-hoo, exciting and we'll be there. Nice. Now, you mean to say Brian's going to get to go and get all the glory and sign all the books and you're going to be staying at home working on the other one? It doesn't yeah, seem well, fair. Stuart, we won't have a third book to, to talk about. <laughs> I'm gated. I can't go riding anywhere at the moment. I'm, I've been told I've got to do more work on the book. <laughs> oh, no, that's horrible. How is the cafe racer? Ah, it's a little beauty, actually. We took it for a ride um, on the weekend with Shirley on the back, and uh, I have a mate who's got an 1100RS uh, in my garage, and uh, she didn't like riding on the back of that. But this little uh, 1984 Cafe Racer um, with a tricked-up engine in it, uh, you quite liked it, Yeah, it was good. It was comfortable. I enjoyed it. It's not the GS, but it was really good for a little Sunday ride out to have a coffee and back home. Very pleasant. Oh, nice. Wow. Well, my plug is um, the Good Adventure Company, who um, we have on our show fairly regularly. The Good Adventure Company is set up to, um, 
Well, they have the, the retail store and they sell the, they, they specialize in soft luggage. They sell um, all kinds of bike products. And what they do is, what's unique about it is, they take the profits and they donate it to charities that are sustainable, like Lost for a Reason. So I just think it's fantastic. I think it's a great spot for someone to go. If, you, if you're looking to buy something anyway and you, you want to help someone out at the same time, uh, to me, it's a win-win. You get to go, you, you spend the same amount of money on the, on the bags that you're going to buy anywhere else. And you know that a portion of that goes to, or the profit of it, goes to help somebody out. Absolutely fantastic. So um, the Good Adventure Company, good-adv.com. And that's my plug. That about wraps it up, doesn't it? Jim, can I make two comments before we finish? You can. Thank you. Um, One of the things that came out from the last episode of Raw was that I changed my mind about something as a result of the episode. Um, I thought I'd mention this because in the end, the whole point of Raw is because we have the opportunity to learn and adapt and and move forward. And it was something that Shirley and Brian talked about, um, particularly Shirley, because Shirley was talking about working for the road. And um, I remember that I was a bit negative about it because I was thinking that it's going to take over and it's going to be a distraction and so on. But the way she talked about it and how she compartmentalized Um, traveling and working and made them into different sections rather than letting them overlap too much so that both could be winners, I thought, wow, yeah, I can totally see the logic. So I wanted to thank Shirley for changing my mind about that because you've opened a door for me. And I also wanted to mention Ian Coates because in the last episode, um, I said that Ian had had um, a nasty accident and was in hospital incredibly poorly. Um, and Ian is, um, well, I think he's still in his hospital bed from what I've seen on Facebook, but he's certainly smiling and he's doing loads better. So I just wanted to let uh, listeners know that Ian is on the up. That's very good news. Yeah, right. Right. Excellent. Great. And also yeah. talking about changed opinions based on what other people have said, that happened to me as well. I think we were perhaps on the last show a little bit harsh about people who do their blogs and their websites and their Facebooking instead of looking on what's around them. And perhaps I wasn't considering the people who are doing it for the first time. They've been talking about it, saving up for it for a very long time. The family and friends are so excited for them. They want to know what's going on. And of course, they want to keep contact with their people back at back at home. And this isn't uh, this isn't really to to to, to relate back to my uh, to my pick about the myadventure.com, but I do feel perhaps I was a little bit harsh on those people, and um, perhaps I'm in a lucky situation where I'm perhaps a little bit blasé about uh, the the whole the whole Facebook thing. And, and, and sitting on the bus going into Sofia to get the plane here the other day, there were some backpackers next to me, and they were and and when they did put their phones down and talk to each other. I just realized that all I was doing was on a bus going back to the UK from my home. But what they were doing was looking at mountains going by and being in a foreign country and looking at Cyrillic alphabet. And I realized that perhaps I was a little bit harsh on people who experienced stuff for the first time when I'm lucky enough to have experienced it several times. We, watched, we had a look at your, your Facebook page and saw you on the bus. 
Thanks for that. That's a very good point. <laughs> Anyone else have anything for this episode? Well, I guess we'll call it a day. And that's the second episode of Adventure Rider Radio, or ARR Raw. Thanks, everyone. Cheers. Thanks. Good to be here. Cheers. Till next month. Hello, everybody. Bye. Well, that about wraps up this one. We're done for the day. Done for the month, for that matter. It comes out once a month, ARR Raw. And you can find out more about this by dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com forward slash raw. And hey, if you like what we're doing, you're enjoying the show, and you want to keep it coming to you for free, consider dropping us a donation. Drop by the website, same one I just gave you, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the Donate button. Now, remember, this is a separate show from the regular Adventure Rider Radio show, so you have to subscribe separately. Check it out in iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast download mechanism is, and make sure you subscribe. Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Before I wrap it up, I want to say a special thanks to our contributors, which is Grant Johnson, Sam Manicom, Graham Field, Shirley Hardy-Ricks, and Brian Ricks. Thanks to all of them. And, of course, our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, who keeps things going in the background here. Now, if you have an idea or you'd like to hear us talk about something on the roundtable here, simply drop by the website, same one, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the comment button. Let us know what you think of the show or tell us what you have for a suggestion. My name is Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. See you next month.